This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Good morning, good afternoon, good whatever time of day it is. Beautiful people, or not so beautiful people, whatever you may look like, you are welcome here. Can you dig it? I can. My name is Sam LaCrosse. This is another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast, and it is a third. It's a Thursday. It, it is a Thursday. I'm losing track of time. It is a Thursday night, the week before this episode comes out, actually. I have been super busy this whole month of October, so I just got back from a 10-day excursion out of my current hometown of Austin, Texas. I went back to my old hometown to the great state of Ohio for a wedding for a high school buddy of mine. Very, very beautiful wedding, beautiful couple. The whole thing was tremendous. Got to see some people I hadn't seen in a while. And then flew out to visit my aunt, my uncle, some of my cousins out in Phoenix, Arizona. And then went about 45 minutes outside of Phoenix to Scottsdale to hang out with my friends, my brothers over at the Affluent Standard. Had a phenomenal weekend celebration, workshop, seminar, getaway event out there, which was also tremendous. Back here for a week, the week of October 10th, and then I go to Las Vegas for another conference for five days starting on Sunday. So I got to get my shit together and in order for doing this. And I hammered this post before I had to kind of get everything in the makes, the works for this week. I have a lot of other things going on, a lot of projects and throwing around, all that kind of stuff. You guys don't care about this shit. You're here for the post this week. And the post this week is a heater, if I do say so myself. It is a heater. It's a good one. So, and... We are going to be talking about, we've talked a lot about kind of things around the relationships between men and women recently, kind of just the overall strata of the dating market, which is going to be really on what this episode or what this episode of the podcast is going to be on. A lot of the dynamics between men and women, how they perceive one another, how they perceive the dating market. I find it fascinating. I think a lot of people find it fascinating and these have struck struck a lot of really interesting conversations that I have had with a lot of different folks. And I think that a lot of people are going to be struck with the same things. So, without further ado, this week's post, ladies and gentlemen. Innovation can be sparked in many ways. There is the spark of need. Nature abhors a vacuum, and various things need to fill that vacuum in order to provide it. This was, traditionally, the form of innovation that most naturally took place. We currently don't need that spark of necessity because our culture is defined by a lack of that necessity. Instead, we have traded it for something else. Novelty. In the United States, m most people aren't starving. We should thank God for that. Even though crime and illegal drug use and overdoses have climbed, most people in the United States aren't using them unlike other unfortunate countries such as my ancestors' homeland of the Czech Republic. 
life expectancy, although it has gone down and unfortunately will most likely continue to do so, is still higher than at any other point in history. So, as Drake and Lil Baby have so eloquently put it, wants have taken just as much, if not more so, prominence than needs have. Particularly to America's young people, this is what drives them to do most things. Being born in a life of decadence, opulence, and any other word commonly used in a Jay-Z song comes with its privileges, that of a luxurious lifestyle being foremost. And, as we discussed in our post about luxury beliefs, luxury itself has a tendency to corrupt things. And one of the things that corrupts most insidiously is that of innovation. The question must be asked, if not a lot of people in America need much of anything, what is the point of innovation? Why make anything new if there is no need? What else is there to make? Where does innovation come from? These are all necessary questions, and interesting ones if you dig into them further. But in my opinion, it is the last one that is the most peculiar. In a country that is lacking it in all ways of life, innovation for the first time in the history of American life has to actually be incentivized, mostly by people who hold heavy purse strings and wield large spheres of influence. They're usually cultivated in, quote, innovation hubs, such as Austin, New York, and San Francisco. And sadder still, they're usually filled with the most elite and privileged in our society, those whose wants have certainly outweighed their needs for most of their life. The young, affluent, and detached. One of the more prominent forces of modern innovation in this kind of culture is an organization called Hatch Labs. Hatch Labs is what is called a, quote, innovation incubator, an institution dedicated as a think tank to that of young, hungry, and ambitious entrepreneur types. They're overwhelmingly dominated by those who want to work in tech. You'll find much more people wanting to create algorithms than new types of asphalt. That's sexier. That's what gets you more attention from Sequoia Capital. That's what gets you prominence amongst our technocratic overlords. Potentially the most unsung innovation of our time was created in a West Hollywood-based Hatch Labs subsidiary in September of 2012. That day, two young men named Sean Rad and Joe Munoz developed a mobile application that they called Matchbox during a hackathon, where young computer programmers and software developers relentlessly code and design various features and functions uninterrupted for hours. These are remarkably effective ways to bring products to market. Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, was the man who first discovered this. Some of the things he and his company reaped from them were the pivot to AR-VR technology and the like button. That day in September, Rad and Munoz took a different approach. Instead of creating a social network, they built an algorithm that was much more transactional for Matchbox. In a remarkably clever act of deception, they planned to incentivize people to get off the application by forcing them to dive even deeper into the algorithm's clutches. Investors loved it. Attention means eyeballs, and eyeballs mean dollars. However, the one thing that investors didn't like was the name. It was too similar to the current market leader, even though they were certain that Matchbox would overtake it. Rad and Munoz didn't mind. The new name was better, more efficient, and definitely more accurate. Tinder. After the application was developed and their team assembled, including future Bumble founder Whitney Wolf as one of their first sales reps, Tinder created the innovation that would change everything the ability to swipe left or right on profiles. This action, this simple but yet so complicated art of social validation, revolutionized the dating market. Never before had it been so easy to categorize who was desirable in the dating market. Never before had the price of rejection been so low. Never before had the ease of getting someone to like you been as elevated. By October of 2014, Tinder was averaging an astonishing more than a billion swipes per day, not even two full years after its launch. Their growth is exponential and soon paved the way for apps such as the aforementioned Bumble, 
Hinge, and Plenty of Fish to come in to claim second mover advantage based on a variation of Tinder. Realizing the revolution that was happening on, on online dating, Match, the company that we were scared of interfering with the name Matchbox, Tinder's, and Tinder's most successful predecessor, merged with Tinder for a whopping $3 billion to effectively monopolize and streamline the online dating environment. By 2017, Tinder's paid version of the app, Tinder Gold, had surpassed Netflix as the highest grossing app on the App Store. In 2021, Match Group's annual revenue was greater than $44 billion, and Tinder, the driving force of nature that drove the business, had an incredible 75 million users. The story of Tinder and the revolution to the dating market is perhaps the most underrated innovation to modern life in the entire 21st century. And some people might balk at this, but the facts are inarguable. The algorithms contained in Tinder, the ones that polarized and stratified the dating market for young people, permanently changed how men and women looked at each other. The majority of young people in America use virtual dating apps as primary sources of meeting one another now. They don't feel the need to go meet places to go to places to meet people anymore, to use increasingly archaic social institutions to help facilitate love and connection. They can just hop on the app, open up their matches, message them, and when they've outlived their usefulness, discard them for someone they think could be a better fit for them. And these trends were accelerated to a greater degree when COVID hit in March of 2020. Because when the pandemic shut the world down, dating and human interaction generally fundamentally changed and shifted at a breakneck pace. More people met online and used Tinder as a source of enjoyment. At one point, realizing the trend, the companies that ran them opened up the algorithms even further, allowing anyone to put their location anywhere in the world. More connections, more eyeballs, more attention, more money. As the dating world moved virtual, more and more people found an opportunity to shed previous conceptions about interacting sexually. This shift in where people could meet to get these interactions moved the focus, primarily for young people, on making dating app profiles as attractive as possible to those who they wanted to be interested in them. Since this shift, the greatest opportunity, at least numerically and statistically, to meet one another is to show their worth to their desired pool of mates through a unilateral dating interface on a mobile application. But this is a lie. Everything that the, that the apps promised, when you really examine it, doesn't come true in a vast majority of cases. It's a lie. It's a false idol and promise. And the reason that it's a lie is because all of social media is a lie. It's not real. Like, it's literally not reality. It's a hall of mirrors, a distorted perception of what life is actually like in the real world. The real world, excuse me. Those who know how to use the tool of social media will do overwhelmingly better in any domain that those can, who cannot. We're seeing that now through the rise of influencer culture and the mindless and numbing content that it's created in its wake. The dating market, enhanced by dating apps and the men and women that use them, has become an arms race. The two competing parties, primarily, are the men and women who use them. Why is this so? Because, as mentioned, the person who has the best profile gets to dictate his or her options in the dating market. He or she who has the gold makes the rules. The increased openness of options in dating and relationships is at an all-time high and climbing higher as I, write this and I, as I do this podcast and write this post. So, to compete, men and women have to cheat, deceive, and lie by showing the opposite sex hyperbolized relationships of what they and their lives are actually like. The competitive nature of the dating market and those within it has been racing forward at incredible speeds. Like the arms races of the past, such as the stockpiling of nuclear weapons between the Soviet Union and the United States in the 20th century, both sides are scrambling, 
doing whatever they can to load up their arsenal to give themselves the best chance to survive. And more importantly, like that specific arms race, there is only one outcome. Mutually assured destruction. If you want to know why we didn't nuke the shit out of the world all those years ago, that's why. If you want to know why we should get on our knees and pray every night that our country doesn't fuck up the disaster that is the Ukraine war that we're funding, this is why. The first nuclear weapon ever dropped by the United States on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to end World War II was the equivalent to tossing a pebble at a window. With all the advancements and innovation that has happened since then, it's going to be the equivalent of throwing a top of a mountain through that same window. If a nuclear bomb was dropped today, it wouldn't just blow up a city. It would blow up half of Europe. This advanced competition in the dating market, the intense rat race between men and women to climb out of the bucket that we've been dropped into, has both atomized and stagnated the dating market. And this is not good. We focused a lot this year on the interactions between men and women, like we said earlier, and how both are currently failing the rest of us and our chances for an optimistic future between both of them. If we're to do so, we must diagnose the how and the why these things are happening. And to do so, we're going to first look at how men participate in the dating arms race, how women participate in the dating arms race, and what will unfortunately happen when the arms race accelerates to its apex and reaches its peak. And, unfortunately for all you poor suckers, you can't swipe left or right out of this podcast. Although you can turn it off, and I would encourage you to not, because I need the views and subscribers and all that shit. I really do, guys. We need to keep the, uh, keep the train moving here. So, part one. Men are trash. A good place to start when studying the atomization of the dating market would be the models that both genders, but specifically men, follow. Since the dating market has been digitized, and adding in the factors like the ongoing crusade against masculinity and the lack of masculine role models in America, men have gone where they have been able to find sources of information to help them craft their identities. The internet. To start off from a place of fairness, there are many people that have made a living by being very positive dating coaches and influencers. My friend Hafiz Bayoku, the co-founder of The Roommates and The Standard, is one of these. His friend Courtney Ryan, who offers a great perspective on male dating and lifestyle from a woman's perspective, does as well. I personally used a coach by the name of Dan Bacon, who runs a very popular YouTube channel out of Australia, when I was at my lowest peak. I've generally heard good things about Corey Wayne and Matt, Matt Hussey as well. And I would be remiss to not mention figures such as Jordan Peterson and Matt Walsh who talk more about dating and relationships, particularly towards men, than most would think for cultural and political commentators. It's perhaps the most unsung reason why both of their popularities have exploded. But to be fair in the inverse, the internet does not have nuance. Like social media, it's skewed towards absolutes and generalizations about every topic under the sun. It's hard to make a living off of nuance online, because having nuance online doesn't sell. Internet advice, both good and bad, relies on echo chambers to make profits. It's all word of mouth. The currency you have in the culture is the currency that matters the most. You can have all the money in the world, but it can't touch influence. And most days it can't even come close. This phenomenon is at a massive ripple effect in the dating market, particularly amongst men. Because of the distortion of the internet and its polarizing effects in the minds of malleable young people and men, Men are getting two very different echo chambers being placed around them simultaneously, like women are as well, and we'll get to that in a second. It's usually not a matter of if they fall into one of these two distorted versions of masculine dating strategy. Unfortunately, it's usually only a matter of when they fall into one of those two distorted versions of masculine dating strategy. 
The first distortion that men fall into is that of the hypermasculine red pill type. The red pill community, a subset of, internet -bound, of the internet-bound manosphere, was formed in large part by a man named Rollo Tomasi. Rollo Tomasi, one of the original creators of the manosphere, helped to found the red pill community by borrowing its namesake from the incredible film The Matrix. In the film, the lead character Neo is offered by his mentor Morpheus a chance to break out of The Matrix, a digital simulation, in exchange for the unfiltered truth about the apocalyptic state of the world. To take the red pill is to immerse yourself in the truth and change your world permanently. To forsake the red pill is to reject the truth and continue your existence in ignorance. The hypothesis of the red pill community, people like Tomasi, is that the way that men largely interact with women in the current culture is completely backwards. The one who has the power in the relationship is the one that needs the other the least, they say. Men must not answer to women for anything and reject all previous cultural norms about how men and women interact. Tradition be damned. All that matters is, quote, their truth, which, needless to say, is nothing more or less than their opinion. And to be fair, there's a lot of truth in what the red pill types say, sometimes. It is true that men have and always will prefer women of a certain age and health, like Rolo Tomasi says. It's true that the way you dress and present yourself to people matters, like the late Kevin Samuels says. It's true that women are attracted to status and that men should not simp for attention by putting themselves below them, like Andrew Tate says. But it's also fair to point out that these are not masculine traits at all. Masculine men who don't respect themselves don't lower their standards for women they don't find attractive. They don't dress like slobs, eat like shit, and let their bodies go to hell and expect women to, quote, accept them the way they are. They certainly don't drop to their knees and beg women to pay attention to them. These are not masculine traits. They're the traits of boys, the, definition, the definitionally unmasculine. It is the toxic immaturity that, that invades their personalities, but just in a different form than some might think of when they think about it. The second distortion that men fall into is that of the feminized beta type. This type of man goes the complete opposite of the red pill types by convincing himself that everything about the red pill community is not only wrong, but harmful. Instead, he tells himself that he must not only forsake his masculinity, but he must do so in a deceptive way to achieve success with women. Nice guys don't necessarily finish last, but they certainly get taken advantage of more than guys who don't fit that category. Strangely enough, beta males count on this to have success within the dating market. Their flawed assumption is that if women are able to step on them just hard enough, if they are able to command an overwhelming amount of control and respect in their relationship so that the women can subdue them, that she will drag him around and pick him up because of his submissivity. By forsaking his masculinity, this type of man does the one thing that women hate most of all. Forsaking his masculinity. Women do not want to date boys. They want to date men. Competent, confident, strong men. That is the archetype. That is what men need to and should strive for. Being a man of excellence, like Bayoku says, is the best long-term strategy to communicate to women that you are a desirable mate. He is 100% correct about this, and not just because he's my friend, and I like his content. If you look at the typical jobs that women are attracted to and sexually fantasize over, you'll find no surprises anywhere. Billionaires, doctors, actors, musicians, lawyers. All of those positions in the world require the virtues of confidence, competence, and strength to both attain and maintain into the future. Women are not attracted to bums and losers. They are attracted to men who don't, they don't have to treat like children, can complement her strengths, bolster her weaknesses, and can provide a focal point for leadership in a relationship. 
The two above examples are the same thing. Toxically immature. They're two very different fruits, but they both grow from the same tree. Neither one of them is masculine. Neither one of them is mature. Both are outgrowths of a flawed ideology. One rife with confusion and manipulation by people who want to wield influence over a group of weak-minded and willed men desperate for respect in the dating market. Both ramp up to extremes, as we've seen with the above examples. There's a reason why the people that, can expre that express both types of ideologies have the reputations they do, whether it's the recent example of Andrew Tate or literally any character that Michael Sarah plays in a movie. It doesn't mean that both archetypes of flawed masculinity in relation to women are coming from bad places or that everything they says is inaccurate, because neither one of those things would be true. But since none of them are masculine, women are attracted to neither. Women are not attracted to caricatures. Women are attracted to masculine men. They want to interact with and be attracted to men, not boys or those who espouse to toxic immaturity. That is what women always have, and always will, desire. This realization, combined with the two different archetypes of masculinity that men have been exposed to in the digital dating arms race, have resulted in both of these demographics losing their grip on reality. Dating, whether they want to admit it or not, still happens in the real world. You'll still have to face a woman in person at some point. Until Meta and or Lex Friedman develops a perfectly made female android, they're shit out of luck. The natural reaction of both of these groups is to burrow and tunnel into these flawed versions of masculinity and attempt to escape the actual reality of the situation. They base their entire beliefs system of beliefs, their entire architecture of their ideology, on half-baked partial truths that get them nowhere. When they begin to realize the cracks in the system, they try to run away from them as fast as possible. But they cannot. You can't run away from the truth. It will always find you. It will always humble you if you try to best it. Because you can't. This has resulted in something else, something far more troubling. The digging of deeper trenches between other men and other women. The red pill types do this by declaring war on women out of resentment. They're generally very angry at them because they think they're holding them back from getting what they want, which is, ironically, women themselves. They believe, as we'll see in the next section, that women have a matriarchy over the world, which is as ludicrous of a statement as women believing that men have a, have a patriarchy over the world. The beta male types declare war on other men, better men, for being their competition. They refuse to come up to the level of competition required to get women for themselves, so they simply attempt to become women themselves. They chameleonize themselves and attempt to embrace femininity in desperate hopes that women will respect them. They will find out eventually, and unfortunately, that all of these attempts will be in vain. They will not be desired or respected by women. Women like to date men, not other women. Well, in some cases, we're talking straight women here, so stay with me. Both of these outcomes further drive a wedge between men and women for various reasons. If women cannot hope in, see hope in men due to a loud implication of either of those two archetypes of toxic immaturity, it may cause their vision to become distorted, that these types of men are the only ones out there. And this is obviously false. But sometimes, seeing is indeed believing. When women can only see toxically immature men, they have a tendency to begin to believe that only toxically immature men exist in the first place. Without a proper masculine culture in place in American life, with this massive arms race for men to outcompete other men and dominate other women, masculinity itself gets lost in the sauce. There are no reference points for proper displays of masculinity because they've all been forsaken for something that's much easier to obtain but much worse to demonstrate. It does nothing but hinder men from what their stated goals are. In addition to hindering men, 
It also dramatically throws women off course. To compete with other women, and with men, women have to distort and caricature themselves to an immense degree as well. They have to participate in the arms race in order to keep up with the opposing gender and not be left behind. But like all arms races, they eventually become hollow and sad shells of what was once a very beautiful and noble thing. Part 2. Gynocentrism. Like most scenarios in the world today, women have to be treated differently than men, because women are different from men. We would be doing a disservice to both men and women by treating them as interchangeable widgets in almost anything, but especially in something as peculiarized, or particularized excuse me, as dating. Just as men were affected in a uniquely disappointing fashion, the same can be said for women as they experience the digitization of the dating market and the massive arms race between men and women that soon followed behind it. Women have been affected in the dating market because of the natural differences between that of men. We've already covered what men need in order to be valuable in the dating market. They need to be excellent. Excellence is unfair, because to be above average requires a stratification of the people participating in the game, which is to say, all men. It requires winners and losers. Games can be played fair, but the outcomes are anything but. Ask anyone who's ever lost anything in their life, they'll tell you. There's a hefty price to pay for excellence. And those men who are both truly excellent or not excellent at all feel it in very different ways. Women, as it turns out, also have to be excellent, but in a different way. To be valuable in the dating market to men, women have to display two primary things, according to evolutionary biology. The ability to have children and the ability to keep in good health. In the cavemen days, it would have made no sense for a male to take on a woman who could not do what biology made them to do successfully breed and pass on their genetics. The modern translation of that can be distilled down to this. In order to be valuable to men, women have to be physically and sexually attractive. Now, before I hear cries of cancellation, this does not mean that the buck has to stop there, and it doesn't stop there. Women being physically attractive is just the entry point. It's the cover that you have to pay to get the bouncer to let you into the club, and it guarantees you nothing as soon as you walk in. You could have the time of your life or the shittiest experience ever based on what, who you encounter inside and how you go about that encounter itself. The same is true of women. As we discussed in our Critical Gender series, the barbification of women has made a good portion of the young women in America unattractive to men. The entire point of being attractive in any way is to stick out and provide unique value in some way, shape, or form. When women all look the same, talk the same, and think the same, it naturally distills the value of what they could potentially bring to the table if they were not that. It becomes a matter of simple economics at this point. It's supply and demand. The personality of women matters. Their temperament, their intelligence, and for certain their values matter immensely. A lot of other things do too, because attraction is a very complex chemistry. But no matter how politically incorrect this is, the fact of the matter is that the mixture cannot begin, in the eyes of most men, if that man does not find that particular woman physically attractive. No matter the personality, temperament, intelligence, and values, it will take a near Herculean effort on behalf of that particular woman to successfully compete and win against other women for competing for that man's attraction against women who are more physically attractive than her, at least at the start. The good thing, however, is that, like men with their sexual market value, women can fix this. It cannot be a complete and total fix unless they want to shell out a shit ton of money for cosmetic surgery, just like men have to shell out a shit ton of money for time and money for a complete life overhaul. 
but it can be fixed with a good exercise routine, diet, social routine, and water. Whether women take this seriously or not is on them. No matter how much they may claim it to be unfair, it is reality. And reality can be a cruel motherfucker more times than not. But this has plenty of drawbacks as well. Just as men are incredibly insecure about their status within society, women's primary insecurities draw from their inability to be attractive to men based on their physical appearance. Their greatest insecurities, and by natural selection their greatest strength in the dating market, have been put on display in front of their enemies, peers, and potential mates. The digitization of the dating market, the trivialization of most modern dating into likes and swipes, has placed a premium on women to have it all together at all times. This is, again, an incredibly demanding and unfair thing to ask of women, just as it is for men to be excellent at all times. But the arms race that both men and women willingly have entered doesn't care. Women have to keep up or risk being left behind. And what has become the beauty of femininity is a distortion of the beauty of femininity, in the same way as it has been taking place inside of masculinity. What was once an admirable and pure thing has now perverted by, been perverted by culture and the drive of competition into something unrecognizable. The first distortion that women fall into, in a similar way as men, is that of hyperfemininity. They take the virtue of femininity, of womanhood, and shower it with nearly unlimited amounts of excess. They drown themselves in what they believe is suitable to the opposite sex, which, as we've covered, is first and foremost physical attraction. They become experts in how to make themselves feel and look as attractive as possible all the time. They become like Cassie in Euphoria, always striving for an impossible standard of womanly perfection. But perfection is impossible. The women that embark on this know all, know, all know it, too. So they result in the only thing they can do when their utopia falls from their eyes. Destructive behavior. And this destruction comes in two forms. Themselves and other women. The way in which women destroy themselves is by discarding all other elements of themselves and sacrificing them at the altar of the feminine, quote, ideal. They shun themselves the whole personality, the things that will make them attractive to men in the long term, all for the short-term gain of just getting in the door. It's no different than a pump-and-dump scheme. All they need is a leverage point, and they go way overboard to try to cash in as much as they can before people realize it's fraudulence. But when most men do realize their fraudulence, most of the women that partake in this are deeply confused. Isn't this what men want? What am I doing wrong? Am I not good enough? And this isn't necessarily the case at all. There's a strong possibility that these women are these things. But through their own distortion of their version of femininity, this is not the case. They need to do more. Be more. They need to get more attractive. They need to get more feminine. They need to move more away from the other things that they falsely think are undesirable. The excess creep turns into a full-blown sprint downhill. This track of the feminine distortion of the dating arms race leads to nothing but disappointment and misery from the women that fall into its clutches. They don't know what they're most likely doing nothing wrong, so they keep going down the false track in order to reach their desired utopian state of womanhood. They lean into the thing that makes them the most insecure in a shallow and vain attempt to gain security from it. That's the definition of insanity, and all insanity leads to a complete obliteration of your sense of self-worth. The more that people, and this group of women, lead into that insanity, the more their self-worth will inevitably bottom out. But it's the second distortion that we find is even more bizarre than the first. At least in the hyperfeminine types, as in the red pill types, the women in that group are clinging to what has worked for generations to find desirable men in the dating market, even though that mindset has caused them to succumb to excess and fuckery. The second distortion that women fall into is similar to the beta male types, 
a type we've already covered before when talking about the cliff of human fertility that we're currently running over a few weeks back. The boss bitch. The boss bitch mode, the act of shunning traditional femininity and gender roles, is attractive to women for the precise reason that the beta male type is attractive to men. They want to put men down and gain respect over genuine connection and intimacy. They want to build themselves up to be invincible, to dominate the opposite sex by way of reputation and proxy, not by actually doing what is desirable. In other words, they do the exact opposite of what men believe to be attractive. They camouflage themselves and make themselves masculine in an attempt to gain a desirable man to pay attention to them in the dating market. But this, like the beta male men, has a core problem with these types of women that they do not want to come to terms with. Men don't find it attractive. Men want to date feminine women just as much as women want to date masculine men. And again, to be perfectly clear on this, this is not a stay in the kitchen argument. Of course women can have jobs and careers. Of course, they can strive to be successful in the workforce, form successful businesses and organizations, and climb the corporate ladder via advanced degrees, competence in their chosen field, and a robust network of connections to help them get there. But to tell women that men value those traits over those of traditional femininity is false. It's a lie. Most men, contrary to the boss bitch archetypes, don't give a shit about what women do for a career just as much, just as, much as most women don't give a shit about men who are, quote, good men. Some men might care. Some women might care if men take on a more feminine temperament or personality. But to say that those two things are not the exception to the rule is foolish and stupid. Only naive people believe them to be true. They're most likely lying to themselves because deep down they don't believe that they can rise to the occasion and sacrifice who they are so they can become who they and the opposite sex ultimately desire them to be. The problem with hyperfemininity is that these women succumb to diminishing returns of value. They alienate themselves from men by diving so deep into the excess of femininity that they can no longer relate to them. They become so one-dimensional, much like the red pill men, that they lose all long-term mate potential in most men that observe their behavior. Femininity is what men desire most out of women, but to say that it's the only ingredient in the recipe isn't at all true. The problem with boss bitches is that they shun femininity altogether, thus cutting themselves out of the dating market before they even have a chance to play the game. Just like non-excellent men, non-feminine women lose out on quality mates of the opposite sex for the simple fact that the most desirable quality of that particular gender vanishes by their own volition. When the quality of womanhood is absent, most men are not going to want to go anywhere near it for the simple reason that the faucet of attraction will be completely turned off. The last point I would like to make before moving to the fallout is something that I want to stress with both men and women when they begin to participate in the dating arms race. When a party begins to participate, they do not just alienate themselves from the opposite gender. They alienate themselves from other men and other women. In the case specific to women, think of the two primary distortions of femininity we've laid out. Both of them, as we've seen, do not work to attract most men. So, if most of their attempts to attract men for the long-term relationship are unsuccessful, they go further down the arms race rabbit hole by building up their stockpiles more and more thus leaving them more and more alienated from most men who they could potentially attract should they go away from it. They force men to adopt an adversarial relationship with women, and the same in the inverse, because men are exactly the same. In their two, two primary distortions of masculinity, all resulting from toxic immaturity, they cut themselves off from most women being attracted to them. So, buying into these distortions even more than they did prior, they burrow deeper into them and try to use excess to dig them out of the hole that was dug by excess itself. They mistakenly think, as with these types of women, 
that by nesting deeper in their own insanity, that women will finally, quote, see the light and magically drop to their knees in front of them. They won't. Both the masculine and feminine attempts to participate in the dating arms race leads to one unilateral outcome for both parties, despair and misery. The very thing that both these men and women sought to do, find a suitable person in the dating market, has been removed from them by their own doing. And worse still, they cannot see that they themselves are to blame for it. It's always someone else's fault. Someone else has to take responsibility. Someone else has to own up to the fact that they're not desirable. And in this case, who is that someone else? The opposite sex. Without anyone to contend with, when everyone else has been crowded out of the dating arms race, the only group left to contend with lies on the other side of no man's land, the one that has just been just as big of a stockpile as weapons and just as much animosity as you do. Without anyone left to contend with in the dating market, completely by their own doing, all that either party sees is something that stands in their way of their own happiness. All that's left to do is to get your weapons at the ready, dig a trench, and wait for the bombs to start dropping. Part 3. No Man or Woman's Land The Cold War was one of the scariest periods in world history. Even though near, no serious conflict ever broke out between Russia and the United States, the threat of nuclear annihilation hung over the world like a dark fog. One bad foreign policy decision, one bad fuck-up on the world stage, one poorly timed speech, could lead to the destruction of everything in our world at the simple push of a button. As that nuclear arms race accelerated, so did the animosity between the two countries. Although people like Rocky Balboa attempted to calm the tensions, he still did end up beating the shit out of their country's most prized fictional possession. No one could win because no one could put their ego aside and listen to how dire the situation actually was. I can't think of a singular thing more so than a nuclear holocaust. But due to the pride of both countries and the ego of flaunting them on the world stage, nothing was ever done. Even after the Cold War was, quote, over, the tension still remained. The stench still populated the air. The elephant remained in the room. Ever since the fall of the Berlin Wall, ever since the Cold War, quote, ended, Russia and the United States transitioned from being active enemies to static enemies. They still didn't like each other. In many ways, they still hated each other. They cooled down enough to coexist relatively peacefully but they never found a way to broker a peace between the two countries, to compromise, to help one another out. That would have been a constructive exercise, particularly given the whole possessing thousands of armed tactical or nuclear weapons thing. But they didn't. For almost 35 years, the two parties have been quietly holding a dagger to the neck of one another, daring the other to move their necks ever so slightly so they could gain a reason to slit their opponent's throat. Neither country ever did it, because doing so would have just resulted in their own throat being cut right afterwards. It was a death sentence. No one had the guts to lower their weapons and come to the table to talk. And the world is paying the price for that right now in a very real way. When Russia invaded Ukraine in February, the daggers went from resting on necks to pressing further into tracheas. No blood has been spilled yet, but we're just a few pounds of pressure away from skin being broken. One straw can certainly break the camel's back in a scenario such as this one. There are some out there that 
think, like to think, I should say, what happened in the 20th century isn't a possibility right now. That's a, and that's a completely laughable assertion. We're closer to nuclear war right now than we've been in potentially the history of the world. It's at least been since the Cuban Missile Crisis where the talk of a country using tactical nuclear weapons to bring our world to an end was even a focal point of discussion. Now our uniparty that runs the country, our expert in ruling classes and the mob that enforces both of them, are calling for it on all sides. We're funding it. They're getting funded for it. They want it to happen. They're out for blood. As Jordan Peterson is a fan of saying, it's incredibly unwise to hide things in the fog. If something still upsets you after time has passed to where it shouldn't, get your thoughts out carefully and completely so it doesn't consume and destroy you. Instead of getting to a place where Russia and the United States could coexist, they've made each other pariahs. They've dug their trenches so deep that they can no longer see that the other party that is one that's made up of human beings that are mostly decent and good people. They don't want what is going to happen. They have things that they value more than petty conflict with one another, their loved ones being the most prominent. The steps being taken by the elites to undermine them greatly angers them. They don't want this to happen. But unfortunately, they have no power to stop anything. All they can do is sit back and hope that one dumbass doesn't hit the big red button that blows everything to hell. But in this arms race, the dating arms race, the two parties participating do have a choice. We have a say-so. Men and women don't have to play the dangerous game that we're playing in the world today. The one where we could very well end up pressing that big red button and sending the world as we know it into the Terminator. But to do this, it will require much self-awareness and even more action to course-correct from what we've gotten wrong. Where men and women have both gone wrong in this equation is that they have gotten lost in the sauce of masculinity and femininity, and what they actually are. Men and women are no longer speaking the same language as one another, and are therefore diving into their own echo chambers to stockpile ammunition of the exact thing that is causing the opposite sex to not be attracted to them. They refuse to listen to one another, and now are only listening to themselves and their own social delusions of whatever is causing them to be desirable mate in the social strata. The reason that men and women have gotten into the dating arms race is because they've taken their eyes off the prize getting the opposite sex to be attracted to them in the first place. This is the goal of dating, to elicit attraction that will hopefully lead to a long-term relationship that will result in greater fulfillment and happiness in each person's life. It is not to boast or flaunt about yourself and your own narcissism. It is about finding someone that you will love you unconditionally, no matter how you feel that day. It's not about you, because relationships are never about you. It's about the pairing together, and as a pair, as far as I'm aware, you're made up of two people. What upsets one thing in a major way should, in a healthy relationship, have a similar effect on the other person, and vice versa. If the opposite happens, you may have to reevaluate your options. Instead, however, we have now entered into a phase in the world where the remarkable opposite is occurring. Men and women are beginning to despise one another. The animosity between men and women is a very concerning sociological trend that, unfortunately, I think is only getting worse. A society where men and women hate, and have hated for a long time, one another, is not a good recipe for success. It isn't working with Russia and the United States, and we'd all be fools to think that it would do the same for the modern era men and women. When the fate of the population and relationships between sexes lies in the balance, this is something we cannot afford to fuck up even a little bit. Let's think about, if we dare, what would happen if this trend continues. Infighting between the human race is bad enough. War sucks, and it's the most horrible thing that human beings can do to one another. 
But to tear each other down and divide and polarize further over the simple matter of sex and gender, of the basis of biology itself, that's a pretty big wound to tear open into the social fabric, and one that will not easily heal or unfortunately completely. One that has been ripped open, once it has been ripped open, excuse me, it's not something about putting the pieces back together. We'd be lucky if we could even get the stitching right. There is no worse thing for the future of humanity than what the dating arms race is currently doing by corrupting and polluting the market. This is not good. Men and women need each other, and need to interact with one another, for us to have a functioning society and a workable future. There is no future without a successful marriage, pun intended, of the two genders. It quite literally cannot work, especially sexually. Without men and women enjoying and learning to coexist with one another in the world, the arms race will continue, with mutually assured destruction the only outcome possible when all is said and done and the last bomb has been dropped. A big reason why we're seeing all the problems to both masculinity and femininity right now is because we're all out of sorts. No one knows the positions to play or what roles to fill anymore. It's driving everyone crazy. We don't know what to do with one another, and we especially don't know what to do with ourselves. It's all guesswork. We're throwing shit at the wall and hoping that it sticks, which is never a good strategy to use the topic that's this important. The saddest part of all of this is that no one wants to seem to help one another. No one wants to see the problems with our society solved. We just want to burrow further, to prove ourselves right and prove everyone else wrong, even when it's completely inappropriate to do so. Men cannot exist without women. Women cannot exist without men. It's remarkably disheartening to see someone turn their backs willingly on something that is not necessarily, not only for the, or that is necessary, excuse me, not only for themselves, but the welfare of society as a whole. If this does not get resolved and fast, the dating arms race will continue to accelerate to the point we're at now with our parallel nuclear escalation and arms race. Our society will continue to tribalize to the point of collapse, of mutually assured destruction. That peak, the ultimate point of ultimate escalation, will transpire when men and women cease wanting anything to do with one another at all, when we forsake the relationships between the two groups for the sake of projecting their own fraudulent ideologies of each misinformed gender. We as the people who are going to inherit this crisis must try to desperately to fix it, to provide some sort of harmony between the sexes. We have to learn to coexist again, to play our positions, to live up to what masculinity and femininity call us to be, men and women. If we don't, there's a good chance we end up doing irreparable damage to the human race and the future of the planet. It is relationships that move the world forward, not ideology. They are the things that human beings value more than anything and the things that human beings desire more than anything material or powerful could even fathom stepping in for. But, in order to have good relationships, we first have to practice them. Masculinity and femininity are things to be cherished and striven towards as models, not disfigured and parodied by excess. In our current culture, the tensions between masculinity and femininity have incentivized both of these parties to burrow deeper into the lies of false conceptions of what each gender must mean. This acceleration of falsehood, this nuclear arms race between men and women, are eroding any sensibility of what being either to the opposite sex really means. To salvage the future of the dating market, both men and women must possess the self-awareness and work ethic to look at themselves first, and then turn an eye and hand towards helping, not hurting, the other. And, if we can do so in the end, we can all channel our inner Al Shervik by crying from the heavens, Hey everybody, we're all going to get laid.
Okay. So that's the podcast this week, guys. That is a very interesting topic, one that I've been wanting to write about for a good amount of time. And since we're on the brink of nuclear holocaust right now, I figured I'd bring an arms race metaphor into the nature, hopefully in the, what is it, nine days until I this gets posted that the world doesn't blow up. That would be cool if we can get it out before um, all the shit goes down or whatever. But anyways, so again, guys, I think it's really interesting. I think we need to look at ourselves. Self-awareness, as always, as we heard me harp on a billion times, is the key to all this stuff being solved. Look at yourself. Look at your friends. Look at your family members. Hold them accountable. Hold yourself accountable first before you, told, before you hold them accountable. And let's solve this thing. We're meant to work together in this whole thing. We're not meant to do this by ourselves. We got to have men and women got to talk, man, not just in dating context. We got to help each other out with this type of thing. So we got to really come together and just help each other out, man. It's, it's not going to get any better unless we don't help each other. So let's go out and try to do that. So thanks for listening, guys. Open your mind on the day. I'll talk to you guys next week. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nino Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight? Shit.